Quill is just stacked this week. We've got so much news on deck. Speaking of which, Valve has announced the Steam Deck, which is their new handheld gaming device powered by Linux. Yep, that's right. Also, Pine64 announced the Pine Time smartwatch is now available to order. And from the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell, your host of This Week in Linux. We've got a lot of news to check out in the distro section, such as releases from Tails, Solus, Esqualis Linux, and apparently a Linux distro from Microsoft. Yep. Then we're going to take a look at the latest release of Ubuntu Touch with OTA 18, and we've got some app news to check out from Nextcloud and Firefox. All that and so much more coming up on episode 160 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on July 17th, 2021, your weekly source for Linux good news. This week, Valve announced the Steam Deck, a handheld gaming device. Valve having their own portable gaming device is just awesome. I was so excited when they announced this, but could it be even more awesome than it just existing? Well, yes, it can, because the Steam Deck is powered by Linux. That's right. The Steam Deck is powered by Linux. In fact, it is using SteamOS 3.0, which is Valve's in-house Linux distro, which has been rebased on top of Arch Linux. Now, Arch Linux as a base offers a lot of improvements to hardware support over the previous version of SteamOS, which was based on Debian. And with Arch, SteamOS gets access to the latest kernel updates very quickly and a lot more too, making it a very exciting device based on this new configuration. Also, Valve could have stopped there. They could have. I would have bought it anyway just by having a Linux-based device, but they decided to keep singing to me by making it able to use a desktop environment on the device. And of course, I was very excited to see that the DE they chose was KDE Plasma. So for those who don't know, I'm a big fan of Plasma. That's my daily, daily driver. So I was very excited to see that. The announcement stated that it will be using Proton to power the games on the device, and they are aiming to have every Windows game available through Proton by the time this device sh ships. And this is this is very ambitious to make a statement. Uh, they, but they, I am very thrilled that it's even on the roadmap at all, much less something that they're aiming to have done by the end of this year. For those who don't know, uh, this device will be shipping in December 2021. Uh, you may be wondering, is this a device targeted at the Nintendo Switch? Well, yeah, basically it is because it even comes with a dock there that where you can connect it to a TV and have like a more traditional console gaming experience. You can even connect a mouse and keyboard, which is pretty dope, but making a Switch-like device isn't enough for Valve. They decided this device has to be powerful. So here's the specs. We've got a custom-built AMD chip. That's right, an AMD APU is powering this device that comes with an NVMe SSD. They even said it would be possible to upgrade it in the future, which blows my mind. Uh, 16 gigs of RAM, a 7-inch touchscreen with 1280 by 800 resolution, uh, two trackpads, two joysticks, a D-pad, USB-C, a 40-watt-hour battery, which they say offers two to eight hours of gameplay depending on the game and the settings in the game that is used. All this stuff, and the best part is that the Steam Deck starts at just $399 for the 64-gigabyte edition. 
They also have two other versions at the 529 and the 649 with various upgrades to devices for, to the devices with significant increases to the storage capacity and more. If you want more details about this awesome device, then be sure to check out the next episode of Destination Linux, where we are going to absolutely geek out on this. Uh, join us live uh, at dealinlive.com tomorrow, Sunday, July 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for Destination Linux 235 to see us geek out on the new Steam Deck from Valve. And I can tell you, I have already reserved mine. I'm going to be making a video on it the day I get it, which is rare for me because I sometimes don't even open the boxes for a couple months. But in this case, the same day. Guaranteed. <laughs> Anyway, go to dealinlive.com tomorrow, June, uh, July 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for Destination Linux 235 to see all the, the fantastic stuff that I haven't covered in this episode because there's just so much to cover. But uh, yeah, check it out, dealinlive.com. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service, or DBAAS or as I refer to it as, DeBoss. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. You simply offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle all the provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security of your clusters. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc., and together they have ensured that you will get access to all of the latest releases of MongoDB Document Database as they become available. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash dln mongo. Again, that's do.co slash dln mongo. DLN-M-O-N-G-O to get started with the $100 free credit on the new managed Mongo database service from DigitalOcean. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Tails 4.20 was released this week, and if you haven't checked it out before, then you certainly don't want to puff puff pass on this latest version of the privacy-focused Linux distribution. Tails 4.20 completely changes how it connects to the Tor network using their new Core Connection Assistant. This new assistant is most useful for users who are a high risk of physical surveillance or under heavy network censorship or even on a poor internet connection because it can help all of those things. It better protects the users who need to go unnoticed. So if you're using Tor, you could look suspicious to some people who are monitoring the internet connection, but in this case, it takes care of that for you with this new assistant. It also allows people who need to connect to Tor using bridges to configure them without having to change the default configuration. And it helps first-time users understand how to connect to the to a local Wi-Fi network and also making it easier to connect to Tor because by default you have different configurations you can do and this new connection assistant makes it a much easier experience. And it provides a feedback while connecting to Tor as well so it helps you troubleshoot network problems if you have them. Now this assistant is still far from being perfect but they said that they have been working on it since February and this is this first release is the is only the first step. They will be making a lot more improvements in the coming months. So if you want to check it out, I'll have links to Tails 4.20 in the show notes below. Up next in the show, the Solus Project have announced the release of Solus 4.3. 
And for those unfamiliar with Solus, Solus is an independent Linux distro that uses a rolling release model, and it's also the project behind the Budgie desktop. Solus 4.3 release is the third release in the Solus 4 Fortitude series, and 4.3 introduces uh, updated core elements such as the Linux kernel being updated to 5.13, the Mesa gra graphics stack being updated to 21.1.3, and a lot more for better hardware support. Uh, Solus 4.3 sees many improvements to various different desktop environments uh, offered in their different desktop spins, such as the KDE Plasma spin has been updated to 5.22.2, the Mate spin has been updated to 1.24, and the Gnome spin has been updated to GNOME 40.2. And of course, they've made some updates to the DE of their flagship edition, which is the budgie desktop. There's many bug fixes, there's features improvements, there's the speed improvements, all sorts of stuff to the budgie desktop in that edition. And they've also made some platform updates such as the Bluetooth stack with a Blue Z 5.60, updates to FFmpeg 4.4 and GStreamer 1.18.4. Of course, there are numerous other updated packages such as various applications like Firefox, LibreOffice, and much more. If you'd like to learn more about Solus 4.3, you'll find links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some awesome news from Pine64, and that is the Pine Time smartwatch is now on sale for $27. Now, the Pine Time smartwatch is pre-flashed with the InfiniTime firmware. They announced this device uh, back in 2019, and ever since, Pine64 and its dedicated developer community have been working towards making an open-source smartwatch for everyday users. And the Pine Time, like I said, only cost $27. Of course, this means it's not trying to compete with Apple Watch or the Fitbit or whatever, you know, stuff like that. But I'm okay with that because also it means it's not competing on cost either, so it's not $400. The Pine Time boasts a 1.3-inch capacitive touch display, which is a 240 by 240 resolution. It is powered by a Nordic semiconductor NRF52832 processor, just rolls right off the tongue. And that processor has 64 megahertz uh, ARM Cortex-M4F CPU. Just, it just keeps going. It also has a small uh, 170 to 180 milliamp hour battery. The Pine Time uh, also has Bluetooth 5, a motor for vibration, and also a recently upgraded accelerometer in this version, and a heart rate sensor. So while it's not the most robust, powerful smartwatch, it does have a lot of cool features and one that it's open source. It also has, you know, a lot of things that you could make it as like a basic fitness tracker and that sort of stuff. And I'm not much of a fitness buff. However, I have recently begun jogging. And while, you know, my legs hurt, but I am telling you this because uh, previously I wasn't one to wear a watch and I really wasn't interested when they first announced in 2019, but I'm going to be picking up one of these because I recently picked up a, you know, a meh fitness tracker and for my jogs and that sort of stuff. And it's not terrible, but it's made me even, it made, it's made me excited to try the pine time. So where's that add to cart button? Oh wait, no. Okay. Maybe I should finish the show first. So links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, the UbiPorts team have released Ubuntu Touch OTA 18 as the latest over-the-air update. Ubuntu Touch is a mobile Linux operating system based on Ubuntu 16.04 LTS, which might sound a bit dated to you if you know when that was basically 2016, but I am happy to let you know that a lot of progress has been made on the migration to the 20.04 base. It's not ready just yet, but they have made a lot of progress on it. 
The Ubiports developers are also working on their Lomiri environment, which comes from the Unity 8 environment and has a lot of potential, which I can't wait to play with uh, on the desktop edition of it because it's a it's not a desktop environment necessarily because it also works on your phone and that sort of stuff. So that's why it's the Lomiri environment because it has multiple use cases. The Ubuntu Touch 18 or OTA 18 brings a number of underlying improvements such as a new media hub implementation, a more efficient wallpaper rendering, mini bug fixes, and a variety of different performance improvements. The Ubuntu Touch OTA 18 supports a variety of devices ranging from the LG Nexus 5 to numerous OnePlus devices, also the Fairphone, uh, Sony Xperia, the Xiaomi, and many more. I got it right here on my uh, OnePlus, OnePlus One. And if you'd like to learn more about it, you can, you can check out the links in the show notes. Up next in the show is NextCloud Hub 22 has been released. This version of 22 is a major release that introduces new features and many improvements. NextCloud Hub 22 introduces features like user-defined groups called Circles, a new feature called Collectives, which is an integrated knowledge management application, and they've also added integrated chat and task management, as well as integrated PDF signing functionality with DocuSign, EID Easy, and LibreSign, which is very nice to see. And the new Collectives Knowledge Management app is fully integrated with the Circles stuff for the user-defined groups. And this is really exciting because it means that it allows users to edit documents in real time, which is very powerful for a lot of people. So it also features pages and subpages to structure the knowledge and do like cross-document links and stuff like that to connect information as well as doing a better a full-text search to, have, to make it easier to find stuff in your documents. And I wanted to share a couple of quotes from the NextCloud CEO who says, the last year has demanded an acceleration of digitalization in organizations and the market is moving towards more comprehensive digital collaboration solutions. NextCloud has aligned itself and its roadmap to the reality of new work in modern organizations delivering the capabilities needed for the paperless office. So this is a really interesting quote because um, there's one, it's a lot of shuns at the end of words. But also because it is a, the, the last year has changed the world in so many ways, including the digital world and the office world. There are some companies who went remote and have no intention to ever go back and stay in a remote method because maybe it works for their companies. And so it, it, these, the collaboration is very important because of this. And it's really nice to see that NextCloud is working on doing that sort of stuff. Also in this release, they have updated... Uh, this the NextCloud Mail app, which is now features improved threading, email tagging, and support for sieve filtering. This is really good to see because uh, we we use NextCloud in uh, the Destination Linux network administration and stuff like that. And I've tried out the Mail app before, but it was not not very good. And I'm happy to see that they're doing tagging and sieve filtering because that allows for a lot of potential and improvements to the app. So that's cool. The uh, NextCloud Deck project, which is a management tool for uh, like managing tasks and that sort of stuff. It's based on the Kanban methodology of productivity. They've made a lot of improvements there as well as you know improving the search and support for directly attaching documents to a task from within the file manager, which is really cool. And a lot of other stuff in this latest version of NextCloud 22. If you'd like to learn more about NextCloud Hub 22, you'll find links in the show notes. Up next in the show, Mozilla has graced us with another release of Firefox, and this is Firefox 90. The biggest change in Firefox 90 is the removal of FTP, 
or file transfer protocol support. Now this means that you'll no longer be able to use links that have FTP, FTP colon slash slash in the beginning of it, uh, but that's, that's okay. Well, Mozilla started deprecating FTP support in Firefox version 88, but it was possible to re-enable it up until this release. And I think this is a good thing because FTP is a bit dated as protocols go, and not having it in Firefox is totally fine. A lot of other browsers don't have it as well, and I don't think I've even attempted to use FTP in any browser in like a decade because, well, there are other ways to connect to a server that are much better. So, uh, you know, definitely. If, and also there's other tools that do, do FTP directly, like uh, FileZilla and that sort of stuff. But if you use FTP, and you must use FTP, be sure to use SFTP, which is FTP over SSH, because that is much better since FTP has basically zero security mechanism by default. So you definitely want to use the SFTP version if you do need to use it. Anyway, Mozilla did say in a blog post that FTP protocol is now included in the list of supported protocol handlers for browser extensions. So that means that Firefox add-ons will be able to prompt users to launch an FTP application if you need to do so. Uh, and in addition to the FTP change, a Firefox 90 introduces support for fetch metadata request headers. It is a security feature that lets web apps uh, protect themselves and also you, really, against various cross-origin threats, such as cross-site request forgery, or CSRF, cross-site leaks, or XS leaks, or X for the cross, you know, yeah, you get it, or speculative cross-site execution side-channel attacks, which are better known as specter attacks. So the Mozilla explains in a quote, the fundamental security problem underlying cross-site attacks is that the web is in its open nature does not allow web application servers to easily distinguish between requests originating from its own application or originating from a malicious cross-site application. Now, this is the most important piece, and that's why all these different things are being uh, added to this latest version to mitigate those things. And it's very, very important, and I'm very thankful that Mozilla is doing that work. There's also a lot more in this latest version, and if you'd like to learn more about this, uh, there you'll find links in the show notes. But also, if you're curious why I often talk about Firefox, well, it's my favorite web browser. And if you want to know why it's my favorite, then check out the video I made about the seven reasons why I use Firefox, as well as my video about Firefox containers, because those are dope. And you need to, if you don't use Firefox, you need to use Firefox for the containers specifically, because they're amazing. Links to all of this in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager, which is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. To do this, it provides tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do it. And it has support for multiple different types of devices, like your web browser, your mobile apps, desktop applications, and even on the command line. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. But maybe you do want to share data. You can actually check out the organizational accounts where you can do it with it, where, where if you want to do a family account, 
where you share it with your your friends and family, or if you want to do a business or enterprise account, you can do that as well, where you can have employees have access to a personal account for their own data, as well as access to an organizational vault, so you can quickly and easily share passwords back and forth for anyone you'd like to do it. One of the reasons why Bitwarden is so awesome is because we use it for uh, personal stuff, also business stuff with related to DLN because there's so much great value in Bitwarden. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And also, did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also want you to check out the premium accounts because there's a ton of great features that you can get in those accounts, like one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with a YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, a Bitwarden Authentic Authenticator for one temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. And you can get all of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right. It starts at less than a dollar per month at $10 per year. So get Bitwarden, make the smart move like many from the community have, and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get your password manager and get peace of mind knowing that your, your online accounts are secure. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have some interesting news from Microsoft, and that is Windows 365 service. So Microsoft has announced the Windows 365 service, which is a new cloud-based Windows desktop service. Now, this is interesting because it's an extension of the Azure Active Desktop service that's already available to businesses using Azure, but it's now going to be offered to everyone. Now, what this basically is, is a Windows as a service model that makes it possible for um, you to use Windows 10 and that sort of stuff. There's also talk about Windows 11 coming uh, in this particular service later on, uh, but it's interesting because... This opens the door for Linux users to use Windows in the cloud instead of installing it locally in a VM and that sort of stuff, which may be good for some people who need to have Windows. You know, I'm not a fan of Windows, obviously, as I am a sh making a show called This Week in Linux, but there are some cases where people need to use Windows, and I, there's any time there's it makes it easier for Linux users to do that, then there you go. And also, in theory, this makes it possible for people who want to switch to Linux, but they need some application that they can't do that, then this makes it easier for them to do it. So that's good. That's a good way to look at this, I think. And this opens the door for also cheap, thin client hardware like a Raspberry Pi to be able to serve uh, Windows desktops without having to have the, the excessive amount of hardware that is required to do it. And also, it might even be something that people who have a hardware that's not going to be supported by Windows 11 to be able to have you know, in the future at some point, Windows 11, I would assume, in the, in, the, in the desktop service so that they could switch to Linux but still keep their applications. I think that there's a potential for this to be good. And it's Microsoft, so probably not. But there's a potential for it to be good. And I just want to let you know that it might be something to check out if you're in a situation where you need to keep, you know, some level of Windows in, involved in your workflow. Now, there are some applications that have not announced whether they're going to be supported or not, but a lot have already done so. So depending on what you need to do, you may be covered and, you know, we'll see. Uh, hopefully this is a good, some good news for Microsoft in the long run, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. But if you're interested, you'll find links in the show notes. Now, before we move on to the next Microsoft topic, let's first, I want to clarify something that I forgot to say in the previous topic. There is another option if you need to have a desktop like as a service type of thing. You can check out shells.com because they have one that allows you to do Linux 
which is awesome. I think they actually let you do windows there too. So you could use shells to do the same thing that this service offers. So just so you know, put that out there. Anyway, let's talk about the other topic for Microsoft's uh, Linux distro, of all things, called CBL Mariner. So one of Microsoft Azure's uh, development team wrote a blog post introducing and digging into CBL Mariner, the Linux distribution that underpins much of Microsoft's Linux-based infrastructure and their products that have Linux-based stuff. So the CBL Mariner is used for supporting graphical Linux inter applications inside of WSL2. And this the CBL stands for a Common Base Linux. So CBL Mariner is a custom uh, RPM-based Linux distribution, uh, partly derived from uh, Fedora Linux as well as uh, VMware Photon OS. Now, it uses a, a TDNF, which there's so many initialisms in this 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 episode i'm just gonna leave it there uh from photon os and also rpm os tree from fedora core os and it uses the calamari's installer if you build an install image to use cbl mariner now there's no official releases of cbl mariner but users can you know build it out if they want to to try it themselves outside of wsl if you want to do that now i'll have links in the show notes for more details about you know how to build it and that sort of stuff if you'd like to do it but you know it's it's not the first time they've actually made a Linux distro. They also made the Azure uh, Sphere, which was a Linux distro for IoT. So there's a lot of people talking about how you know Microsoft's finally made a Linux distro, and uh, you know it's a big deal, and it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. So you know, there it is, because it's something they've already technically done. It's just a different kind of it. And Microsoft making a Linux distro is big news because it kind of shows that Linux is more important even than they want to admit. But in this case, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of WSL2. I'm not a fan of this kind of approach from Microsoft, but it's baby steps, I guess, towards a better future that is the Linux future. But wait and see if this becomes anything of value to me. Probably not, but never know. Links in the show notes. Actually, I do know. Probably not. <laughs> but still, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Flameshot because they, they've released 0.10.0. And for those unfamiliar with Flameshot, this is a screenshot tool that is quite powerful, but at the same time, it's pretty simple to use. And it really tru truly shines when you want to make edits or notes on your screenshots because you can quickly and easily highlight things, add text, add arrows to point to specific areas, and so much more. Flameshot is a very cool uh, application. So what's new in the latest release is that they have improved Wayland support. They have a new option to allow the clipboard image to be a JPEG instead of a PNG, and this may help those who want to limit bandwidth usage and that sort of stuff when pasting screenshots into chat applications. Also, imager uploads are now tracked in an upload history menu, which makes it easier to delete images off of imager or find the upload link later on. And also, they've added a new check for new releases feature. This allows an uh, application to be updated or t tell you that there's an updated version for you know app, app images or Mac and Windows users and that sort of stuff. Or if you're using your you know the default one from your rep repository or Flatpak and that sort of stuff, it'll just do it automatically. But it is really nice to see that they have that option for those who need it. And a new option for setting a fixed save path has been added. 
When this is enabled, a user will no longer uh, need to set a path for each image as they are created. It will now have like one you can just say, use this always, which is really nice. They've also added the ability to use a symmetric selection system by holding down the shift key while resizing a selection. Basically, before you make a selection, it would, you know, you'd, and you wanted to make changes to it, you'd have to resize one corner and then resize the other corner to make sure that it is, uh, you know, optimized in the location you want. But now you can just hold shift and it will resize the action, keeping the proportions that you previously set, which will increase the efficiency of doing this kind of action, which is very nice. And now they've also done something which is really important to me, and that is they have a new global shortcut menu. It's important to me because I, it turns out I'm a big fan of shortcuts. Uh, all the actions that have uh, have hotkeys now, and they're fully customizable. Now, to me, this is baller because the biggest issue I had with Flameshot was the lack of shortcuts. This is not to say that it was a big issue in general. It wasn't even an issue to a lot of people, uh, you know, but at all. But I've come to realize that my workflow is very shortcut heavy. So I... I'd love to see it when people add, you know, really powerful shortcuts to, to an application because to me it makes it better to use, makes it faster to do some things as well. And I always am ex excited to see that. It even means that you have, uh, you, you, I mean, I guess you, it does mean you have to take time to learn the shortcut. So it might not be overall better. It depends on how much you use an application. But, you know, I like to go nuts with shortcuts and therefore... I appreciate the fact that they did that, you know. You can also uh, switch to pretty much every tool in the in the overlay with the single letter shortcut now. Also make notes and stuff like that with it. You can uh, use the undo and redo shortcuts and so much more. Uh, Flameshot is a great piece of software and it may be all you need in a screenshot tool. It fits wonderfully for me when I want to do quick edits or quick notes on the screenshots. I also use Spectacle because it has some features that Flameshot doesn't have and vice versa, really. So it'll probably be like a, a one-two punch, like a left jab followed by a right hook or whatever. Anyway, if you'd like to check out Flameshot for yourself, which I suggest you do because it is really cool, then you'll find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Esquelis Linux. Esquelis Linux 7.0 was released this week, and this is a new major version that introduces many improvements and also some new apps. So Esquelis Linux has a rather complicated base to explain, so bear with me for a second. It is based on Bodhi Linux 6.0, which itself is based on Canonical's Ubuntu 2004 LTS, which of course is based on Debian Linux. And if you ever wondered how that works and what a derivative is or what a fork is and you know that kind of thing, well, check out the video I'll have linked in the show notes and in the description where I answer all of those questions and more. So if you ever wanted to know how that stuff works, check out the link in the, in the show notes. Now, I mentioned that Esquelis Linux 7.0 comes with new apps, and those are AnyDesk remote desktop software, as well as the OpenBoard interactive whiteboard software, both of which are great for use in online classes. Why is that important? Well, Esquelis is Spanish for schools, and that's exactly who the distribution is for. The developer behind, or the developers behind Esquelis Linux had this to say, for more than 20 years, Esquelis Linux has been the backbone for thousands of students and teachers for everything with computer-based learning, with or without the internet, based on free software and open source principles. Under the hood, Esquelis Linux, actually this is, that's end quote, now, and under the hood, Esquelis Linux 7.0 is powered by the Moksha desktop, which is a desktop that comes from the Bodhi Linux group, and uh, it's using the Linux 5.8 kernel with the ability to upgrade if you need to for Linux kernel 5.12, 
as well as a lot of new updates to this latest version of their distro. If you'd like to learn more about Escuelas Linux, then check out the links in the show notes. Up next in the show and the last topic for today is EasyNAS 1.0. So EasyNAS is a 1.0 is the first ever stable build of this distribution that's been around for a while, but mostly like beta and alpha releases. So, and this is a very interesting distribution. And from what I can tell you is that, well, I, there's a lot, there's not that much information out there on this particular distribution. So, you know, keep that in mind, but I can tell you that it is a storage management system for home and small office usage. Uh, it is based on OpenSUSE Leap and it uses the ButterFS file system, which means it gets all of the great stuff that comes with ButterFS, like being able to do copy on write and snapshotting and rollbacks and all that stuff because ButterFS is awesome. And that's why every distribution should consider trying it out or using it completely by default. They're just... You know, just putting that out there. It doesn't come with a desktop environment. It actually uses a web-based interface instead and allows you to manage the NAS system through that. It looks very interesting to me, but unfortunately, like I said, there's not a lot of details of, like about the, the distribution available right now. Hopefully the team behind this will see this coverage and address that. You know, But for now, if you'd like to learn more, I have links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me in the live stream via the Recording Stadium's Skybox, and we can discuss stuff in between topics and also just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. Also, if you want to participate and contribute to the show, you can do so by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com. Because actually, dlnstore.com has a lot of great stuff. The Linux is Everywhere shirt is a shirt I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. But it has a lot of other great stuff at the store. You can find the shirt I'm wearing right now, the This Week in Linux t-shirt. There's also hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and so much more. There's even an apron so you can twill while you grill, and a bunch of other stuff, dealinstore.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then while you're there, check out the rest of the Destination Linux Network website, where you can find things for like podcasts that I'm also a part of, like Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of those shows, and also a lot more like the Pseudo Show, Deal and Extend, and so much more. Check that out, destinationlinux.network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat and we discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next time for your weekly source for Linux good news. <laughs>